to Luke chapter 17. We ended at verse 19 last time. So we'll begin reading at verse 20. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. And if you need a Bible to read with us, just raise your hand and Jerry will slip you a Bible. Again, Luke chapter 17, the third book of the New Testament. We'll start reading at verse 20. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, now when he, that is Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So keep in mind that the Pharisees, the sect of the religious leaders, that they are really mounting their opposition against Jesus. There is great hatred and hostility that they have against him. And as we read in verse 20, they come and they ask him, and they're not doing this in a nice way. They are demanding from him. When is the kingdom of God going to come? If people are claiming that you are the Messiah, as you preach and teach concerning the kingdom of God, as you claim to come from above, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Now, the religious leaders, as well as all the Jews, they were expecting and looking for the kingdom of God to come. So Jesus answered them as we continue reading in verse 20 that, and said that the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here and see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So in their expectation that the kingdom of God was going to come, they were expecting that when the Messiah did come, that he would be militant, that he would be a political, material Messiah. He's going to come. He's going to overthrow Roman tyranny and tyranny, that is. And Jerusalem would be the capital of the geopolitical world. And every man would sit underneath his fig tree and eat from his own vineyard, as the prophet Jeremiah writes in his book, as the kingdom of God does come. You might recall, as up in the Galilee region, we talked about this, and in Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, in that miracle uh, feeding, that miracle meal that he provided for the multitudes that were there in that deserted place, is recorded in all four Gospels. But in John's Gospel, it tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000, that they came to take him by force. In other words, they were about ready to hail him as their Messiah, their king. And we know that in Matthew's account, that at that time, he would dismiss the crowds. And the reason that he dismissed the crowds is because they were only coming to him because they saw him as that material, political king, Messiah. Hey, he has fed us. He's healed every kind of sickness and disease. We'll never go hungry again. We'll never be sick again. And he'll throw off the yoke of Rome. And so they were going to take him by force. But in dismissing the crowds, of course, he was going to come for a purpose in his first coming. And that was to die for our sins. Because there was a, a greater bondage than Rome could ever put on any of us. And that is the bondage of sin. And they didn't understand that. He's going to talk about that here, even in the text, as he's talking about the coming kingdom, that they didn't fully understand. And so they were looking for that material, political Messiah. And as Jesus here, just a short you know, time from now, he's going to be wake, make his way to Jerusalem. When we get to chapter 19 of Luke, the atmosphere of, of the kingdom of God is going to come was expected. Matter of fact, in chapter 19, the people thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And re you recall that as Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, 
that the people were waving the palm branches. Uh, they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they were expecting him to usher in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, having his disciples go throughout uh, Israel preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, they had seen the miracles. Uh, they had seen him uh, heal every kind of sickness and disease. And these religious leaders are demanding him to put up and to produce the kingdom or be quiet and quit claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus makes it very clear that the kingdom of God would not come with observation. Now that word observation here is the only time that it is used here in the New Testament in the noun form. It is used six other times in the verb form, which is speaking of being critical. So here it has the meaning of to observe, but scholars believe it is being used here by Dr. Luke to refer to the Pharisees' hostile examination of Jesus. Hey, when the kingdom comes, we want to see it. We want to observe something very spectacular. We are waiting. We want to observe it. And they are being very critical. And what we're going to read, even in the next few verses, is that when he does come back to establish his kingdom, which he's going to do, the kingdom of God here on this earth, that it is going to be spectacular. He's going to come in great power and in great glory. So Jesus here in answering them at this time in their demand, when is the kingdom of God going to come? We want to see it now. That verse 3, he answers that the kingdom of God is within you. Now, Jesus is not talking about the Christ consciousness being in you like some New Age you know, people like to talk about. Well, the Christ consciousness is in you and you and everyone. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is not talking about that. But a better translation is the kingdom of God is in your midst. Matter of fact, it might read in your translation that or in your margin. In other words, you just can't look there and you can't look here and say, here's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling these hostile religious leaders that the kingdom of God is within your reach because the king is standing in your midst. But you cannot have the kingdom and reject the king. And then Jesus, after answering their demands about the kingdom of God, he now turns to his disciples and he talks to them about the coming of the kingdom of God, beginning in verse 22 to the end of the chapter. And he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. In verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So three things that Jesus tells his disciples in initially talking about the coming kingdom in the verses that we just read. Number one in verse 22, the times when it is going to come when you desire to see me and you will not see it. When you desire to see the days of the Son of Man, you're going to long for it. But as they are living in the expectation of the return of the Lord, keep in mind that these disciples, even after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, when he was getting ready to ascend up into heaven, that in Acts chapter 1, they asked him, hey, is, are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know, but this is what I do want you to do. 
I want you to wait in Jerusalem here for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So those disciples, apostles, would begin to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem. It began to spread. And there would be those times as they went through persecution and great persecution that they longed to see the return of the Lord for the kingdom of God to be established. In the early church, they were expecting the return of the Lord. You see the imminent return, that doctrine, all over the New Testament. We see in the writings of Paul to the churches, we see that he would write to the church of Philippi that the coming of the Lord is at hand. He would say the same thing in the other churches, at the church of Thessalonica. He wrote that you're to wait for his son from heaven. We know that James would write the same thing to the Christians, that the Lord's coming is at hand. And Peter, too, at the end of his life, in his second epistle to them, right before he goes home to be with the Lord. So they were waiting for the return of the Lord. They were longing for the return of the Lord. And I believe that we as Christians, that we should long to see the Lord's return. And I mention that because there are those that are behind the pulpit that will say, well, it's not important to be looking for the Lord's return. You know, that's not a priority. That shouldn't really be our hearts. And the Bible says otherwise. Jesus gave a commandment that we are, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, that we are to be, Luke chapter 12, the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. We don't know the day or the hour of his return, but he says, I come when you least expect. And we see it all over the New Testament that the Lord desires for us to be watching, to be waiting, and we should long to see the Lord's return. I believe that all of us as Christians should long to see the Lord's coming. We should be saying every day, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Second of all, verses 23 and 24, that when I do return, everyone will know it. Jesus would say something very similar in the Olivet Discourse as recorded in Matthew 24, also in Luke 21, in Mark chapter 13. And he says that false Christs will come and deceive, that there are those who are going to say that there's the Christ out in the desert or he's over here. And we know that there have been those who have come on the scene over the last 2,000 years and they have set a date when the Lord's going to come back. And when he didn't come back, they'll say, well, he came spiritually. Or he came, you know, um, it was a heavenly coming. Or it was done in secret. It was hidden away. And Jesus said, no. Don't follow them. Don't believe them. You know, Jehovah Witnesses have uh, done that. And others that have set dates. Jesus said very specifically, no one knows the day or the hour of my return. But he did say that I'm going to come when you're least expected. And so don't follow those who, you know, say, well, the Lord came in secret or it was spiritual or, you know, it was an event that took place in the heavenlies. Don't believe them. And Jesus says there'll be no confusion when I come back. It will be as the lightning rises from the east and flashes on to the west. Also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And every eye will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It will not be a secret. And we're going to return with him as Revelation chapter 19 declares to you and to me. Even as Jude says, that little epistle right before the book of Revelation, that behold, he comes with ten thousands of a saint. He is going to come back literally, physically, 
and he's going to establish his kingdom. And there will be absolutely no confusion when that happens. But then thirdly, Jesus says to them in verse 25, but first I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And that contrast, as he's talking about that it's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. It's going to be great power and glory. Make no mistake about it, that the kingdom of God is going to be established. But first, but first, I must suffer many things. Even as he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that I must be lifted up even as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And Nicodemus, I must go to the cross. And here, as he says that I'm going to suffer many things by this generation, the disciples not understanding, being shocked at this contrast, I'm going to come in great power and glory, but first I'm going to suffer, be rejected by this generation. Now, he has suffered many things by our generation, and many have rejected him. But it's interesting that he says this generation. In Matthew's gospel, he calls it an evil and adulterous generation, perverse and faithless, at least in four different places in Matthew. He speaks about how that generation he was living in and and how they had rejected him. They're going to reject him. As Messiah was walking in their midst, the kingdom is not going to come until I finish my work here on the earth. And again, they didn't understand that. Luke chapter 19, we'll read, they're expecting that the kingdom of God is going to be established right away. They're waving the palm branches when he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we've discussed, the reason that they were doing that, because it was a symbol that you're going to overthrow Rome right now. Here comes our Messiah. And they got that from 200 years previous when this Syrian king came into Jerusalem and Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was brutal. Man, he came in and he desecrated the temple. He took a pig and he slaughtered the pig in the Holy of Holies and he smeared the blood all over the temple. Pigs were considered unclean. He killed many of the priests, many Jews, and the Syrians came and they oppressed the people. But Judas Maccabee and his brothers began this revolt. And after nine years of struggle, they finally drove Antiochus uh, and the Syrian soldiers out of Jerusalem. And they celebrated by cutting down the palm branches and waving the palm branches. It was a symbol that they were free. They were delivered. No more political oppression. And that's why they were waving the palm branches in the triumphal entry. He's going to establish the kingdom of God. He's going to do it. He's going to overthrow Rome. They're going to get it. And when they realized that he wasn't going to usher in the kingdom, it would be a few days later that they're crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. We have but one king, and that is Caesar. The kingdom of God will not come until the king goes to the cross and he will suffer many things. And of course, not only did he suffer the agony of the cross, but Jesus also beaten brutally by the priests and also by the Romans. He was flogged almost to the point of death with that cat of nine tails. So brutal was the beating of Jesus that Isaiah prophesied that he would be more disfigured than any man who ever lived. His beard would be plucked out. His face would be swollen. His scalp lacerated with the Jordian thorns used to make a crown that would be beaten on his scalp. And he could have called down the kingdom of God at any time. All he had to do is speak the word. 
He said to Peter, when Peter pulled out his sword there in the garden, when they bound him up, Jesus, to take him away. Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels? All he had to do is say the word, and they could have come down, destroyed those soldiers, destroyed Jerusalem. He could have destroyed the whole world and started all over again. But he didn't because he says, I must suffer many things and greatly because he wants you to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as Jesus took that cross the next day, and as he walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem to that place of execution, he suffered because he loves you so much that he brought forgiveness to you and hope. He brought the hope of eternal life as you surrender your life to him. And on that cross, he would cry out, it is finished. That's what I've done. Because a greater need than being free from Rome was to be free from sin. We've all sinned, and a death sentence has been declared because whoever has sinned, and that's all of us, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, who came and died in place of you and for you and took your sins upon himself and shed his blood. And he rose from the grave, and he's alive, and he proved that he's the Son of God. Listen, no one else did that for you. No one else did that for you. Only Jesus. He conquered sin and death. But he is going to come back again. He says, for before the kingdom first comes, I must suffer these things. And then he continues speaking in verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. When I come back, you're going to see me. It's going to be obvious. And when I come back, he says, in those days, he uses two Old Testament examples, speaking of the suddenness and the certainty of his return. The first one that he uses as an example is the days of Noah. And then he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, he's emphasizing this. That number one, if you're taking notes, the suddenness of God's judgment. Second of all, the totality of God's judgment. And then thirdly, the unexpectancy of the judgment that comes. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness by the apostle Peter. The flood would come suddenly after Noah preached righteousness and built the ark. Noah was doing God's work for 120 years. And that teaches us that you and I, that we are to occupy till he comes. You see, waiting for the Lord and watching for the Lord also means that we're working for the Lord as well. You can't be the wise servant unless you're serving, unless you are being used of him. It doesn't mean that we just, you know, stick our heads in the sand. But it means that every day that we have opportunity, because this is the day of grace, that, Lord, I want to be a faithful servant. I want to be faithful in serving you and giving the gospel and giving truth to others. And so here was Noah that he was doing that, a preacher of righteousness. He's building that ark out there, this ark which is huge. And I know that there have been some here in this fellowship that have gone out to Kentucky to the, the ark that was built at the Creation Museum uh, with Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham. I guess it's very spectacular. But one of the things that we did here at Calvary Chapel Greeley, one of the vacation Bible schools, is we wanted to show the kids how big the ark really was 
So what we did is the ark being 450 feet long and 40 feet high is we put these helium balloons on a string that had 40 feet of string and we let them go from the ground up, which would be about twice as tall as this building. And then we stretched it out for 450 feet, which would be from when you walk out that front door all the way across that parking lot, well, the dirt parking lot, all the way to the end to the next parking lot where you see there's, you know, uh, parking lights that are out there. It's a long ways. It's a huge arc. That's before there was lumber yards and power tools and all of this. And the people would come, and I'm sure that they would scoff at Noah, and they would mock him, and they would say, what are you doing? Judgment's going to come. Judgment's going to come. It's going to rain. What is rain? And for 120 years, they would come and said, hey, let's watch this old coot. Let's watch this crazy man building this ark and look at it. And, and they would mock him. I'm sure that they did. And as he said, it's going to rain. Judgment's going to come. What is rain? Because it didn't rain like it does now on Tuesday. Man, the heavens opened up here. And it rained. Matter of fact, a foot of hail was in this parking lot. And so they didn't see that because Genesis chapter 1 tells us that there was a firmament around the atmosphere. It was a water canopy, and it was tropical all around the earth. And that's why they don't advertise it a lot, but that's why they, they have found you know, fossils of tropical plants in both the polar regions, in the Sierra Desert, up in the North Pole, they found a mammoth that something happened very suddenly where he was frozen, and he's got vegetation in his mouth. So it was tropical all around the world. There was this canopy. It didn't rain like it did. But here's the thing. There was also a population explosion. And some people think that there was just a handful of people that was around. But people were living to be 700, 800, 900 years old. And scholars believe that there is 5, 7, 10, 12 billion people that were on the planet. And all those people were wrong. And eight were right. Eight were right. Peter says that in the last days that there's going to be scoffers that are going to come. And just as it was in Noah's day, they scoffed and laughed, but they didn't know that the judgment was going to come. And there's going to be those that will come to you and say, you crazy Christian, you really believe that the Lord's coming is near? You go to Calvary Chapel, that old coot over there, that pastor, he's been talking about the Lord's coming for 20 years. Well, we're 20 years closer. (laughs) And the Lord is going to come back. It's not that he might, he is. And just like it was the scoffers in Noah, remember that Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that could discern the weather, but not the coming of the Son of Man. And we are being told here is that there's going to be a generation where there is the normal routines of life, eating and drinking and giving to marriage and working, and suddenly there's going to be this interruption and judgment is going to come. In a few verses, he's going to say there's going to be this interruption and one is going to be taken as I believe that he's going to talk about the rapture of the church. And one's going to be left for that judgment. And I am praying as the Lord talks about his return and coming for the church and the rapture of the church, 
Are we that generation? Are we? I don't know. But I sure pray that we are. And if any of you are thinking, I don't want the Lord to return because I got things I want to do, then do them. The Lord has put these things on my heart. That's great. You move forward. Occupy till he comes. But if you're thinking, I don't want the Lord to come because I got so much I want to do in life or I got these goals, I do have to say this, that I am praying against you because I am longing for the Lord to come back. And Paul would write that our salvation is nearer than we first believed. And we can say this for sure, that this generation of the church is closer to the return of Jesus than any other generation. So the teachings of Jesus about his return, the the verses that we read about his return that speak about his coming is more applicable to us than ever before. Learn from the days of Noah what they were like. There was given in in marriage, eating and drinking, but he was a preacher of righteousness and the people were doing evil continually, we read in Genesis chapter 6. The world was filled with violence and with wicked imagination and that's before the internet. And they would continue to live their lives as normal. In the midst of all of it, there was something looming over them. And then Noah and his family, eight of them, would enter into that ark and they would close the door and all of a sudden there was a drip and then a drip and a drip and a drip and a drip and it began to rain and it rained for 40 days and then it says that the waters underneath the crust of the earth that it opened up and great torrents of water would come through and God's judgment would be complete on the earth. Sudden destruction would come. Second example, verse 28. Likewise, as it also was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And even so will it be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed, apocalypse, We know that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, everything Jesus says was normal until on the day that Lot went out of Sodom. We know of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's famous even today. Even non-Christians know of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot was taken out. Lot, of course, being the nephew of Abraham, but as you read the book of Genesis, here's Lot and his herdsmen. Here's Abraham and his herdsmen. They're fighting. They're butting heads. And Abraham comes to Lot and says, listen, we're brethren. We got plenty of room. So this is what you do. You look to see where you want to go, and I'll take my guys and my you know, uh, livestock, and we'll go the opposite direction. And it tells us there in Genesis chapter 13 that Lot looked towards the Jordan Valley that he looked towards Sodom, and it was like the garden of the Lord. And he said, I'm going to go there. The next time that you see Lot, he's pitched outside the city of, of Sodom. The next time you read about Lot, he's in the city of Sodom. The next time you read after that, you see that Lot sitting at the gate of Sodom, which is a position of leadership. Peter comes along. And he writes 2,000 years later that Lot 
When he was in Sodom, he was vexed in his soul. He was tormented in his soul, hearing of the lawless deeds. But God delivered righteous Lot. And even though there was great immorality and sin in Sodom, there was something that drew Lot and his family into that city. It was prosperous. There was lots of activities. It was culturally stimulating. They sold, and they bought, and they planted, and they built. It was a happening place. It was a building boom. But there was great wickedness. And we see in Genesis chapter 19 that when the angel came to get Lot out and to get his family out, that Lot, you go tell your son-in-laws that they need to leave. And so Lot does. He says, we need to leave immediately. Judgment is coming. And it says that the son-in-laws laughed at him. They thought, no way. This isn't going to happen. But as you read Genesis chapter 19, what you're going to read is as the angel's getting Lot and his family out, his wife and two daughters out, that they lingered. And he, the angel says, listen, I cannot do anything to the city till I get you out. And I think that's very significant. Because Lot, to me, is a picture of the church. Righteous Lot. That he will take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. The book of Revelation, the promise given to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3 of Revelation. He's going to take us out of and away from the hour of trial, tribulation of judgment that will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And he will take us home to be with himself in what is the rapture of the church. That he will come at suddenly in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then judgment will be poured out on a Christ-rejected world. And Jesus talking about this, giving us something to think about. He's saying something to us this morning. Verse 30, he says, In that day he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And remember Lot's wife. And whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Remember Lot's wife, the second shortest verse in the Bible. The shortest is Jesus wept in John chapter 11. Here, remember Lot's wife. Now, here's the thing. Think about it. We don't know anything about Lot's wife. We don't know her name. It's not mentioned. We don't know anything about her personality. We know she's married to Lot and she had children. That's all we know. So we have to assume that what Jesus is saying is remember Lot's wife. That He's saying, remember, think about, you need to consider her sin. Prepare for the Son of Man to be revealed and don't be attached and enamored with this world. Remember Lot's wife. Now, back in Genesis chapter 19, again, they would linger. And the angels are saying, we got to get going. And he would take them by the hand to get them out. Verse 17 of the chapter, he says, don't look back. He gives that warning. And then in verse 26, she looked back and became a pillar of salt. I was telling a congregation this on Wednesday. It's interesting that when you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, he talks about Lot's wife, and he said that Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, and I've seen it. It remains to this day. And so is Clement, the Roman. Uh, Clement, a, a, 
contemporary of Josephus. He saw it as well, and all its members intact. It's very difficult to get to. Southern end of the Dead Sea and, and difficult travel to see it. But there's testimony of 2,000 years ago of Lot's wife still being there and its members intact. And as she would look back, it was more than she just glanced back to see the fire and brimstone. Because the next verse of Genesis chapter 19 tells us that Abraham, that he looked towards the smoke of the judgment as he looked towards the plain. But when it says that she looked back, it takes on the meaning that she longed for it. She lingered getting out. She didn't want to go. She didn't think really the judgment was going to come. She wanted to stay. And she was fascinated and captivated by Sodom. She could not leave Sodom in her heart. And she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. It was Jesus that has told us already in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, that no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, they were always wanting to go back to Egypt. Moses, why'd you bring us out here in this wilderness? We're tired of this manna. We're tired of being out here in tents. We're tired of walking around Mount Sinai. And they murmured and complained. And they wanted to go back to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. And here's a trick of the enemy. He wants you to look back. Hey, why don't you go back to the old habits, the old gang, the old hideouts, the old ways. Remember how fun it was? Remember how you used to do these things? They were saying, we want to go back to the food. But you see, what Satan will not do, the enemies remind you of how you were in bondage. Just as the children of Israel, they were in slavery, and they were baking bricks in the hot, blistering sun, and the Egyptian taskmaster's whips were on their backs, and they were throwing their babies in the Nile River because of the command of Pharaoh. And the enemy will not remind you of how you're in bondage. And the enemy is a terrible taskmaster. And he wants to destroy you. The Bible says, for you and for me, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. We're to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus here finished addressing the coming kingdom to his disciples, he says in verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two men as in italics there in your Bible. It should just read two. There's two in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus is telling us that there's going to be a global event that will happen at once. You say, what do you mean a global event? How do you know that? Well, we read it. Two will be sleeping. That's night. Two are going to be working in the field. That's daytime. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. Now, who's going to be taken? The commentators will argue one's is going to be taken away to judgment because Jesus is talking about judgment and one will be left for safety. Others say no, one's going to be taken away to safety and one left for judgment. I'm kind of going either way. God is going to divide and one day in a global event in a certain generation, 
one's going to be taken. And it's my personal conviction that this is speaking of taking to oneself for relationship, that this is speaking of the rapture of the church. And the reason that I say that is because the Greek word here for taken, it is used in another place, is used in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bring forth a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. Joseph, take Mary as a bride. And that same Greek word is also used in another place in John chapter 14, verse 3. That Jesus says, I will go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself. Same Greek word, receive you to myself that where I am there you, you will be also. Speaking of the rapture of the church where he's going to call his bride home and he's going to come suddenly when you're least expected. And then Paul writes about it in First Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we, we as believers who are alive, there's going to be a generation, this interruption, She'll be caught up, the Greek word harpazo, where we get our English word rapturous, where we, or the Latin word rapturous, where we get our English, English word rapture, is going to be caught up, a sudden taking, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Noah was in the ark safely before the judgment came. Lot was taken out of Sodom before judgment came upon that city. And I believe that we're going to be taken out before the wrath of God comes on a Christ-rejected world. Comfort one another with these words. And then Paul says, concerning the day of the Lord, you have no need for me to write to you, as he continues writing to the Christians there at Thessalonica. For when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. But you, you're children of the light. Your children of the day, not of the night, not of darkness. And he would say that we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort one another with these words. I believe the Lord can come back for us at any time. I believe that we are to be watching for the return of the Lord. I believe as Christians we should long for the Lord to return. And you see, in that city of Sodom, when judgment came, they had absolutely no clue that it was coming. Not a single person in that city, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, woke up expecting judgment to come. Even Lot and his family, when the angel came to get them, to take them out, no one expected it. So the question is, are you looking for the Lord's return? Because the kingdom of God is going to come. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come completely. And there's a whole lot of people out there that aren't expecting it. But he is going to come. Or are you enamored with the world? This world is not your hope. We are in the world. I understand that. We have jobs. We have businesses. We have children to raise. We have things that we have to do. But this world is not our hope. Our hope is in Jesus, and he's coming back. And we're children of the day and of the light. 
So be sober and be watching and put on, put on the breastplate of, of righteousness is what you and I are to be. Peter says, what manner of men ought we to be when he's talking about the return of the Lord, living for him, because we get to be a part of an incredible kingdom that will be established and last forever. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for these words of Jesus. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is truth. And every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. And Jesus is going to come back. He's already suffered many things for our sake. And we thank you for that, Father. To be free from sin. That this is the day of grace. That there's power in the gospel to save a power to change a person's life, to make them a new creation, to forgive sin, to bring us in the right relationship with you. So, Father, I do pray if there's anyone that's here in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop or listening on live stream or listening on the radio later, that you've never made a personal decision for Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. He is your hope. Don't think that you can be good enough. You cannot be good enough. None of us are. Don't think it's about religion. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with the true and the living God through Jesus Christ who came and loved you so much that he died for you specifically. And salvation comes by admitting that you're a sinner in need of the Savior because we're all sinners. And humbling yourself and surrendering your life to him and calling upon him. He is truly Lord. And as I said, no one else died for you, conquered sin and death. He cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price. And now you come in faith and asking him into your heart as you surrender your life to him. He wants you to be a part of this kingdom that's going to come. He wants to forgive you. He wants to bring you into right relationship with the Father. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation because the Lord could come for us at any time, but tomorrow isn't promised to any of us either. It's the most important decision that you will ever, ever make in your life. More important than where you're going to live and what you're going to do. All the important decisions that we do make in life, but this is the most important decision because it has eternal implications. And the gospel has been presented to you. Receive the gospel. Just come to him. Cry out to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can pray right where you are that Jesus, I come to you just as I am, a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I know that you rose from the grave. You're alive because you're speaking to my heart. You're convicting me. You're drawing me to yourself. And I open up my heart to you and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. My life is not its own. And I want to know you, walk with you, and live with you all the days of my life. Do that work in me, Lord. Thank you for giving me this new beginning and forgiving me and giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name. Listen, while we're being respectful, 
If anybody prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. Will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Those in this sanctuary, if you're out in a coffee shop, you can do that. If you're listening on live stream, give me a call. But anybody at this time, put your hand up, put it down. Raising your hand, it's not to embarrass you. It's not to, you know, it doesn't save you. It's just saying, I've made a commitment to Christ today. And I'm walking out of this place being free from sin. Father, if there is decisions, I pray that you would bless the ones that I can't see, you see, because you see our hearts. And all of us would walk out of here being encouraged and blessed by you. Lord, you're our hope. There's a coming kingdom. In the meantime, as we watch and wait, may we occupy, prioritize you in our lives. Again, I pray for all the moms that are here in their ministry to their children, to their grandchildren, that you would bless them. Give them the the courage and the wisdom and the strength and the high calling that you've given to them to minister to their children. Father, we support them. Ask that you would bless them. Bless our day and our week coming up. We thank you for what you've done in this place this morning and what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, help us to be a light as we go from here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. God is good.